Well, I think maybe most of you know this by now, and if you don't, then this will be news, and it actually kind of leads into what I want to talk about this morning, but um, Justin and Stephanie Nunes, uh, our high school director, um, they had their baby girl, and um, after 33 hours in the hospital, so you can be rejoicing with them and praying for them as they recover, and um, speaking to you parents right now, now the, the work really begins, doesn't it? Um, they went from two to four in the last three months. That's zero to 60 in 0.1 second, you know, and that, now it's like, okay, now there's this, this years and years and years of now investing in your child. And, you know, that, that's, that's one of the realities of, of parenting, right, is it, it takes a long time to grow a human. Did you ever think about that? It's, it's like cats and dogs, they say they mature within a year. That's quick. Um, they say horses, depending on the horse type, between four and seven years. And they're, just, they're significantly larger than us, but they, they mature in four to seven years. Humans, <laughs> 16 to 20 years? I mean, that's a long time. It takes a long time to grow a human. Uh, doctors uh, told me I didn't stop growing until I was 20. I hit 6'3 and then finally stopped at the age of 20. And then there's the, the, the deeper maturity that happens internally that's necessary. And, and, and we as parents know that that's an important part of our role. To, um, to see our children invested in in, in providing opportunities and education and, and feedback and, and discipline and, and so forth so that they will grow in maturity emotionally and intellectually and spiritually. And that takes a lot of time. And as you well know, those of you who have raised children, um, you know that it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and scads of money, you know, invested in children to take them from infant to 18. And then it doesn't stop from what I hear, which is a sad reality for me. But that's what it is to grow a human. It takes time, and it's interesting that God has designed the family as the context in which a child is formed and grows to maturity, that a child would not be formed or grow to maturity if it were left in isolation. This, it takes time, it takes family, and it takes lots of investment. And the same is true when it comes to the Christian life, to grow a Christian. It doesn't happen in an instant, it doesn't take place overnight. In fact, it takes place over the, the course of a lifetime. But the same features, the same aspects are needed. In order to grow a Christian, there's a need of a spiritual family. There's a need of lots and lots and lots of time and lots and lots and lots of investment to grow a Christian. And that's what we've been talking about prior to um, Advent and prior to the new year took a bit of a hiatus from Ephesians 4, which is all about this growth and maturity in Christ. And I, I want to return there um, because in part, well, it's next in line of the text, but also because I don't know that the church does a very good job of maturing people. And part of that is, is the culture in which we live, we, we, we're raised, and we as individual thinkers oftentimes see ourselves as, as, as individual um, merely and not part of a collective, that we don't really need a family. Um, part of it is that what we've been talking about the last three weeks, we tend to chase after the quote-unquote extraordinary or the immediate or the new. And oftentimes because of that, we're drawn from family to family to family rather than just staying long-term within one church family. Um, or we oftentimes think of church experience or church family a bit from uh, more of a consumer relationship vantage point rather than a covenantal relationship vantage point um, we talked a little bit about that last week a consumer-based relationship is one in which hey if you have the goods and the exchange is 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 
um, good for both of us, then I will participate. And the church kind of becomes somewhat of a marketplace. If you have all the goods, then I will commit. Rather than like a covenant family that we belong to and we invest ourselves in. Uh, on the church side of the house, um, all too often, churches become unfocused. They, they forget the mandates of scripture and in effort to make a name for an organization or a church oftentimes um, use people as machines rather than seeing them as the objects of God's love and, and seeing that our primary purpose is to connect people to Jesus and grow in that relationship with Jesus. And our, we become so much about the advancement of the organization that we lose the people. And churches aren't always a great place to mature people. And, and so it, this, this verse that we're going to look at, we're just going to look at one. It just kind of is in alignment. Like Paul draws us back to why are we here? What are we trying to do as a family? Now we left off two months ago in verse 12. Ephesians 4.12. But it was at the middle of a sentence. Now we're going to continue that sentence into verse 13. Um, but I want to uh, read the full sentence so that you can see the flow. Verse 11 is where the sentence actually begins. Paul has this knack for big, long sentences. And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until, this is our verse, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now in this process of maturity or growth, verse 12 talks about the process. That's the process of growth, that in the one body, God has equipped it with a diversity of personalities and talents and gifts. And that growth takes place when all of the parts of that body recognize that they have to invest their lives in each other for this church to grow, which means everybody has a responsibility. Everybody has a part to play. That's the process. And it's not until everybody plays that part that there is this, this God-designed growth in the whole. We all grow together, or we don't grow. We grow together. That's the process. But then verse 13 tells us or gives us the end goal one might call this a it's a form kind of a, of a mission statement if you will like in all paul's doings and servings and ministries as well as by application all of our servings and ministries and investments should be to this end until we all attain that's the final goal that word translated attain is used over and over and over again in the book of Acts to talk about um, arriving at a city. It's a termination point. We attained the city. We arrived at the city. He's saying, until we all arrive at the same place, this is the whole goal. To the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the end goal. This is where we're all supposed to be headed. This, everybody's supposed to be pushing in this direction. Now you'll notice this purpose statement has three parts to it. Or to help you, maybe visually, this is how I think. Diagramming. 
That is, until we all attain, and then there's three statements made, beginning with the word to. To the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Two brief observations about these three things stated here. One observation is that I believe he's talking about the same thing just from slightly different angles. That is to attain or arrive at the fullness of faith together and knowledge or relationship with Jesus and all of its fullness is the same thing. That's, that's, that's statement one. It's the same thing as arriving at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, a full knowledge of Christ means that we are full of Christ, which means that we've come to complete maturity. And the image there is of manhood. You know, strong and wise, you've arrived. That is, all three of those statements more or less say the same thing um, in, in slightly different ways. Second observation is, is the finality of this. We actually attain this at a future point. The perfection of these things happens at the return of Jesus and the the, the commencement of the new creation. Because we don't arrive fully in this lifetime. This has been an ongoing thing that has gone through the generations of believers. And we're still moving in that same direction, but it finds its finality in the end. That is when Christ comes back. But that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be moving in that direction right here, right now. We're supposed to be moving in the direction now that we will someday be in the future. So this is the direction we're supposed to be moving. Now, given the fact that all three of these statements roughly mean the same thing, I'm going to just focus on the first one because it has the most um, detail. To the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Three words. Unity, faith, and knowledge. Those three words. Jesus is the binding center and focus of those three words. That is, our, our unity is, 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 finds its source and its focus in Jesus. Our faith, faith's object is Jesus. And the last part of that, the knowledge of the Son of God, means actually knowing him. Not just knowing about him. The Greek term has to do with personal relationship, not just acquisition of knowledge. So Jesus is the, 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 the center, the focus, the binding center of these things. That's, that's really important to get our head around. Um, now, let me back up for a second. Because this purpose statement, to the unity, or back up, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, what we're supposed to attain, in some sense, has already become a reality. And I just want to remind us of that because we're not trying to be something different that we are not already. If you were to rewind in Paul's book, I'm going to back up, rewind, to Ephesians chapter 1, we'd read that God's whole plan in sending his son was to unite, this is chapter 1, verse 10, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, to unite, same word as unity, to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. God's whole purpose was bring back together that which was broken. And it's not just people that are broken. The whole universe is broken. The brokenness and fragmentation that took place in Genesis 3, when creation itself fell because its king fell, Adam was its first king. Jesus as the second and final king came to bring back together 
not just broken lives, but the broken universe. He is the center of God's great uniting work. And that was achieved decisively at the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the pivotal moment of unity. Which then um, is a, serves as the reason why Paul could say insistently in chapter 2 that God has made the two, that is Jewish people and non-Jewish people, one man, one person again. He's not talking about it as a future reality. He says, this has already happened by the blood of Christ. They've all, already been bound in one family. And then we heard it again, chapter 4, where he says in the present tense, as if it's already a truth, and I believe that's the point, that there is already, right now, one body, with one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That is, there's already a oneness. He has already achieved it. Whether we want to admit it, acknowledge it, or see it, or feel it or not. The family is one family, regardless of whether someone leaves the church and goes somewhere else. Still part of the, the one family. It's important for us to recognize that. There's no getting out of it. We are covenantally bound to one another in ways that transcend marriage and family. That is the, the normal natural family. So, now, with that background, again, he's saying that we are to move on and we are to arrive at what we already are. That is, to attain to the unity, what Christ died to do in uniting the whole to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. One point of clarification that I think is really important in looking at that first statement. That unity itself is not the focus. It's not the center. Unity always is the byproduct of something else. It's the unity of faith. That is a unity that finds its source in our common shared belief. Belief in truths about what God has done. Common belief, shared belief in a message of reconciliation. It's a shared belief in the message of forgiveness. It's the shared belief in the message of liberation. A shared belief in the message that the king has arrived. It is, it is the, 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 the message, the shared belief in the message that Christ has conquered, is victorious, and he is bringing us home. It's, it's that truth, the object of our faith, that unites us. It's not by focusing on unity that one arrives at unity. That doesn't work in marriage, it doesn't work in family, it doesn't work in church. It's the common shared belief, and not just belief, that's the faith part, but the knowledge of knowing Jesus. You notice that the organizations or groups that are the most united have as their center a common purpose. You find a military unit that, that feels like family, they got that way because they fought in the same battles with the same purpose side by side, moving in the same direction. And it forged a unity of family because they were headed in the same direction. Our direction is the knowledge of Jesus and our shared belief in those, that, the, the message of the good news. That's what creates unity within the body as that good news brings out the implications of how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to repent and how we're supposed to treat each other. I know what you're going to say, because I'm thinking it right now. So, okay, I get it. It's pretty clear. Like, this is, this is the end goal. We're all supposed to be moving in the same direction to the unity of the faith, 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So why is it that the church is so jacked up? Why is it that there is so much discord? And why is it that Christians can write each other off? Why is it that Christians will refuse to speak to one another because of some offense? Like, this seems so contrary to the way things are. So how does it work? Or is, is, this, is this just what you call detached theology? Like, oh, that, that's great, but it really didn't work. It's not true. And I would answer that in, in a way that may sound crazy or surprise you. There is no road to sanctification. It's a word meaning growth. There is no, there is no road to growth in Jesus Christ that's not messy and bloody. Because God is in the process of taking sinful people who are jacked up and making them saints. That means in order for that to happen, he has to expose or bring out that which is flawed, that which, that which is negative. Where the light shines, the darkness is exposed. You can't expect for God to grow us individually or corporately without messes coming out. Our growth is fundamentally messy. We're dealing with deep-seated issues of the heart in the way that the world doesn't have to deal with. They just ignore it or move on or move out. It's, it's fundamentally messy, and sometimes we forget that. It's, 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 it, the con we put a pool in our backyard about 10 years ago, and one of the things the contractor warned me about, he says, listen, when we start this thing, your backyard is going to look like an atom bomb went off in it. It is going to be so messy, you're going to think to yourself, is there any way that this backyard is going to get put back together again? And you know what? He was right. As soon as they started, all of the plants and all of the beautiful uh, pathways, it just everything was gone. What happened to my yard? But he promised me, he says, if you're not surprised about it and you just let me do my work, well then, at the other side, it's going to be beautiful. And you know what? He was right. Or maybe the best analogy, and I hate to use marriage analogies over and over again, but the uh, analogy of covenant in marriage and, and the covenant within the community of Christ is very similar, so it works. You know, I, I get a young couple who want to get married and they're engaged and they say, we want premarital counseling, and so they come to my office or we meet at Starbucks, and one of the questions I often ask, I don't always, but I ask, I said, especially if I don't know them very well, is, have you and your fiancé ever had a fight yet? Like, have you really gotten into it over something that you've disagreed over or had to deal with an offense? You caught them lying. And more than, more than not, the answer is, not all the time, is like, no, we get along pretty good. Like, we're pretty compatible. We like each other. I know him. She knows me. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that you don't know each other very well yet. And you probably don't know yourself very well yet. So there's a, there's a sense in which, at that point, a young, engaged couple would feel like we have a good sense of unity and oneness. But here's the thing. It's a sense of unity and oneness that's based on the bliss of ignorance and bad theology. That is entering into a covenant relationship with another person in church or marriage is, is something that is going to expose what the Bible calls sin in our lives. We are twisted, sin-damaged people. And you know, so, which means at some point, going back to the young couple, some point in their marriage, maybe sooner, maybe, maybe later, 
after the ignorance wears off, they're going to realize it's messy. I never expected this to come out. I never expected it to be hard or, or work. But at that point, now that's not a bad thing, you see, for it to come out. Because that's what's really inside. And there's no way of establishing true deep-seated unity without dealing with it. Which means it's, it's actually healthy for things to come out that are on the inside, provided that they're dealt with in a redemptive manner. That is, they're dealt with in a manner consistent with, with the gospel and with the cross and the resurrection and the truth of Jesus. If the young couple who find themselves in a, in a spot where now they're not getting along can manage to both say, listen, we're not going to experience the unity in marriage by focusing on unity. We're going to experience in our marriage um, a greater sense of unity if Christ becomes the center point of our hearts. And then we have a chance of establishing our unity on something that is humble and solid and honest and truthful and redemptive. Then a true unity can be formed. So it's, you can expect to get messy. Um, that's just the nature of, of what we do here. But the goal is the same. To the unity of our faith, our faith unites us in the same truths as we take them in and meditate upon them and think about them and repent before them in the knowledge of Jesus. That's the main point this morning. It's all of us have to be investing and moving in that direction, encouraging one another in that particular direction. Now let me offer some practical exhortations as to how to go about that that I hope will help you. I'm going to go through these really quick and that serves as the end of the message. Don't look at your watch. This is important stuff. How is it that we can together move in this direction in, in more of a practical way? I've already stated one of them, but I want to say it again for, for reiteration. That we have to Individually and collectively, we have to maintain our focus on the gospel and on our relationship with Jesus. As I said, transformation does not play, take place by looking inward or staring at disunity. There's a place for looking inward and there's a place for looking at disunity. But looking at those things by themselves are not transformative. What transforms is, is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Or to give you a practical example, if I harbor a judgmental attitude towards, just say my wife, keep this personal, because she's not living up to my expectations or not meeting my quote-unquote needs, and that's happened before. It happens in marriage all the time. If I am harboring a judgmental spirit, like you're not living up to my expectations of fulfilling what I believe to be my needs, where do I get my heart right? I come back to the point of recognizing simple gospel truth that you know what? I didn't live up to the expectations of God's law either. And yet he didn't condemn me. He showed me mercy and grace and forgiveness and patience. 
And what that does in that moment to the heart is it begins to dissolve that pride and turn it into humility. And it, and it dissolves that sense of discontentment with another person and turns it into a satisfaction not with the person so much as with God. See, it works. You, you go back there and you allow the truth to percolate into the soul and it changes us and makes us more fit to be unified together as, as partners in marriage or family or, or church. That's, that's the first. Second, also important, and I already alluded to this, expect that when the Spirit's at work, sin will be exposed and people will get hurt. Expect that that's going to happen. I think sometimes we're just unreasonable um, in our expectations as to how people will treat us or, or, or what we'll experience in family, marriage, or, 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 or church. Again, let's just allow our theology to inform us a little bit. Everybody in here is still jacked up. You're still sinful. You're still fundamentally, I I don't want to say fundamentally. I want to say you still struggle with your own self-serving, selfish desires. I I believe there's a new creation heart within all of us that wants to do what's right, wants to love from a good vantage point, but the old man still is vying for control. So as God works those things out, you can expect it's going to get bumpy. That's to be expected. The thing, however, is to deal with it in a redemptive way, not a reactive way. Recognizing, all right, the Lord's working. An infection doesn't get healed unless you open it up and let it out. And all of us have infections. And if we recognize, that allows us a little bit to be a little bit more gracious and and patient with each other. Like, God's doing some stuff in another person's life. Third, embrace every pain and difficulty that you experience on the road to growth with other people as an opportunity to grow in grace. We do not grow in a vacuum. We do not grow apart from failure and suffering. We actually grow through those things. I can honestly look back and say that I've, I've grown more through my failures than I have through my successes. And I think you could probably say the same thing too. And to recognize that's part of the process that God uses, you know, is, is our personal failure. I, I, I think about the apostle Peter. He made a huge mess when he denied Jesus. Massive failure of loyalty, of trust, of love. I mean, the rock, Peter, made a huge mess. And yet in the middle of that, God wasn't absent. It's not like God went, oh my goodness, Peter, I never expected that from you. Seriously? Like God knew it was going to happen. But it was an important failure in his life to teach him or break him of self-reliance to show him the weakness of human flesh to crush his pride and to humble him to the point where he recognized that his strength does not come from within but it comes from Christ and in that way it was a redemptive thing that God did in his life even in his failure and to recognize God is God is in each situation where we find ourselves in a difficult place we are faced with one of two choices Listen, I can either approach this redemptively like God is bringing this into my life so that I can stretch my faith, I can learn how to forgive, I can learn how to be gracious or patient, or I can react in the flesh and just, you know, be on my merry way. And that's not redemptive. Not in marriage, not in family, not in church. Fourth, never give up hope on a covenant relationship. It keeps falling off. Listen, 
when we enter into the new covenant by faith with Jesus Christ, that vertical covenant that we have also includes the horizontal aspect. Old authors used to call the church the covenant community. That is, we are bound to one another by the blood of Jesus. It's covenant. Now, it doesn't mean that a person, if they have legitimate reasons, shouldn't leave one local body and go to another. It's all part of the same body, but it ought to be done with extreme care and reflection. Because by and large, people grow when they stay in the same family. I mean, can you imagine taking your child and saying, well, I'm going to spend two weeks over at the Deckards and two weeks over at the Smiths. Your child would be screwed up. I, I think the ideal is for God's people to stay within one local family, and we grow in that. But never to give up on those, even if a person has departed. You know, to always have a heart that's moving in the direction of till you attain, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Even if that simply means praying. All right, Lord, I've got a brother out there that at this point I'm not in perfect unity with. So unite our hearts. If there's something that needs to be brought to light, bring it to light and let us repent of it. And let us move forward and, and bring back together what has been broken. And, and that, I've, I'm sure you have too. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not done in a week or a month. It's done years later. I don't know exactly how long the period between Paul and Barnabas is split. They had a, you know, their, their sharp contention over the issue of John Mark, one of their ministry partners, and they parted ways. I think one of the reasons that's included in the book of Acts is not just to give us a historical account of why Paul went one way and Barnabas went the other way, but also showed us that it was hard even for the apostles at different points to agree on everything. But if I'm reading the New Testament right, they come back around in the end because they're brothers. They're brothers. And that leads me to my final, my final just practical exhortation to all of us to move in this same direction. It's simply trust that the unity, our unity, is ultimately the work of the sovereign spirit. You've heard it said, you know the verse. What God begins, he finishes. God is more passionate, more powerful about us being one than we are. And he's in control of all the scenarios. And I find it both irritating, on one sense, and humorous on the other that when I have had personally a point of division between a brother it's interesting how God keeps bringing that person back into my life at the grocery store at sports fields and it's as if God's saying now's the time now's the time now's the time and I've seen how he has zippered things back together again because the spirit is in control and is passionate about this and to recognize that um, this isn't an excuse to be passive. It's actually to give us a sense of confidence that even when we're at a place where we're not able, able to live at peace with everybody, and Paul seems to indicate that if possible, live at peace with all men, that sometimes it's going to be really hard. You know what? The Spirit is in control. And the Spirit will convict. The Spirit will um, guide. And the Spirit ultimately, I think, if not now, then certainly at the return of Jesus and the new creation, bring us all back together again when we perfectly arrive, you know, at the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Church family, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is the end game. This is what we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be moving, despite all the messiness and all of that stuff. And every single person in here 
test of moving and praying and serving and ministering and encouraging and counseling in that direction. If we're moving in any other direction, then we're moving opposite both to the word and to the spirit. So that's my exhortation to all of us this morning is to make sure that we are involved in the process of this main point. Um, all the while keeping our eyes on Christ and allowing his gospel to reign in our hearts. All right? All of us have that responsibility in this room. Gracious Father, grant us, by your spirit, grace and courage, confidence, humility, a desire, a genuine desire to treat others as more important than ourselves. Place Christ first and others second. Lord, we pray that you would continue your work of, of jettisoning pride and crushing pride and, and establishing a true, honest humility before you and one another. Continue to grow us, Lord, as individuals and as a family. Give us a heart for what you have a heart for, and that is oneness. Oneness with you, oneness with each other. Grant us patience. Grant us kindness. Grant us a forgiving spirit. Grant us love, joy, and peace. In Christ's name.